Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm Dr. Russ McCullough, founder and director of the Gortney Institute, and I have with me here today colleagues, Dr. Levi Russell, our other resident economist, and our resident philosopher, Dr. Justin Clark. And so today we're going to get into a topic that I'll let Levi lead off with. Yeah, so uh, I've been reading a lot about Forever 21's bankruptcy and kind of watching the process of the store closures and, and all of this. And so, Is that where you got most of your clothes? Or? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, for, every, for every 21, but uh, they don't have my size. So, so Forever 21 is, uh, for those who don't know, it's a, a retailer that's relatively, relatively large and uh, has a relatively strong brand among, I would say, probably millennials. And it's kind of been interesting to look at the analysts talk about their bankruptcy. And there's kind of two causes that are in, you know, most of this analysis uh, for the bankruptcy. And one of them is just the general decline of brick and mortar as the uh, online retailers continue to find ways to undercut the, the last advantages of brick and mortar, like being able to try on clothes or, uh, you know, things like that. The Amazon and some of these other companies have found ways around that. And the other is sort of a more specific thing to Forever 21. So there's sort of some systemic risk, I guess, across that whole industry. But also, just Forever 21 specifically, it seems like they've kind of been caught in the, the wave of just marketing to millennials. And, and as millennials age out of spending gobs of money on teeny bopper type clothing, they've struggled to build a brand around what Gen Z wants. And Gen Z, I've heard it several different ways, but something like people born around the year 2000 or maybe a couple years before or after, um, that would be Gen Z. So, you know, kids that are in college right now or... or now, somebody said Gen Z, they were labeled Z because... You know, some of the people who claim the end of the world's coming with global warming or something, that they'll be the last generation. Uh, Have you heard that? Well, just well, curious. I didn't know if somebody made that up no, or if I think that was a serious thing. The actual reason why is because before millennials were called millennials, we were called Gen Y. Yeah. And now that I don't know why. Because of Gen X. But Gen X, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. So, but I don't know why X is X, yeah, right? Well. X, so there was X, then Y, then I guess they have to be Z. But I'm sure, I mean, I've also heard the term Zoomer. Because, you know, we have boomers mm. before Gen X, and so people like to call Gen Z Zoomers just for fun. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting that I, I just think it's an interesting cost structure issue so that in terms of building their brand, Forever 21 did not adequately spend time convincing people that they are charitable in certain ways. You know, that they're not, that they're not adequately taking on the new version of the Tom Shoes model. No. Correct me, I, I, if I remember right, when I went to Manhattan, Forever 21 had a huge piece of real estate right on Times Square. Do you know, was that part of their business model that as far as brick and mortar goes, they went kind of all in? Because I was surprised to see their physical presence at a lot of different, not that I go to a lot of malls all over, but sometimes even, you know, just traveling around. 
um, I would see these kind of big stores and I just wonder if that's, yeah. that's where part of their strategy, they got expensive real estate in Times Square that they're paying for. Was that? Yeah. I mean, the only time I've ever been in one of their stores is it was, it was as big as a relatively large size JC Penney or, or, you know, department store kind of thing, yeah. but it was just their merchandise. Jam packed full of. Yeah. And so it was yeah, hot, you know, very expensive and, and very large. But in terms of what you're saying on conservation-minded Gen Z people, it certainly had the glitz and glam of a normal let's spend money and waste resources right. type well, of deal. And, if you, and, and lit, you know, whatever. Yeah, if you, if you look at the, the articles that we're going to put up in the show notes, you know, it's very, very clear that the, the whole um, aesthetic was popular brands like potato chips and stuff like that. That was the way they were marketing their clothing, and it just it didn't have the – we're protecting mother Gaia kind of uh, <laughs> complex that it seems like, or at least analysts mother will Gaia. say that, you know, Gen Z want to. That's mother earth. earth Gaia? Yeah, right. Where's that from? Mayan word or term? Gaia? No Mayan? idea. The Gaia hypothesis is the idea that the earth itself is a living organism. Um, Anthropomorphism of the, the planet. So okay. it is interesting that other brands like who forever 21 competes with like Zara or H and M. Right. H&M is actually the one I was thinking of okay. on Times Square, but I'm maybe for, Forever 21's yeah. there too, but H&M was the one I've been surprised at seeing, like, oh, who, who is H&M? And yeah. I think they have a similar business uh, model. Well, similar structure in the way that they put out limited runs of things that are mm-hmm. only available for a short amount of time, but that they buy at a very steep discount. Keep people um, coming and churning through the yeah. store type of thing. Full disclosure, this shirt is from H&M. <laughs> it's uh, $13.99. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Very cool. Very but also, cool. Well, that's inexpensive. It doesn't yeah. have Cheetos or anything on it. So yeah. where H&M uh, kind of has plain stuff, Forever right. 21 was kind of more flashy and uh, the brand snarky a little bit, you know. Must be where uh, my so son it's like, got his ramen noodles sweatshirt. Yeah, knows. there you go. Okay. Yeah, like, I don't really like ramen noodles, but it's... It's funny to say ironic that. In, in a ironic. campy kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, so apparently Gen Z apparently is not buying into that, I guess. Maybe that's the idea. I don't know uh, that these analysts are talking about. Maybe they want the plain stuff like you're wearing. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> H&M hasn't bit the dust yet. Well, on the flip side, my I don't know where my wife heard this, if this was just on public radio or something, but niche boutique stores are on the rise. And so we've got traditional brick-and-mortar big things on the decline because Amazon's a good substitute. But as far as that special shopping experience, knowing the shop owner and maybe some niche localized merchandise that is apparently on the rise. So that might be a a direction where things are heading and maybe it's partially due to the Gen Z because then you're support by local, right? Supporting local or whatever. And that might be a neat thing that emerges out of the ever growing Amazon online market as big, big brick and mortars start to fall. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I think it brings in a couple things from economics. You know, the creative destruction aspect. People come up with Amazon. You know, Jeff Bezos came up with the whole Amazon concept and then applied it to you know literally every kind of retail, and and so that's continuing to undermine these the J.C. Penneys of the world. But then at the same time, there's the concept that if I buy a shirt, it's not just the shirt that I value. Yeah, it, there's all these other things that I subjectively attach to that, and so when you know when you have opportunities like you know this 
local shop owner niche kind of thing. It's, it's not just the shirt itself. It's the location. And, and I think, again, that may be a, what's and undermining Forever 21. Yeah. Is, is the fact that, I mean, you know, I watch Shark Tank and every time there's a retail thing on there, a new retail play, it's all about, well, you know, whenever we make a shirt, we, we tell a story and blah, yeah. blah, 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 yeah. and all this yeah. stuff. There's kind of a tension, at least I feel, with the rise of like the Tom shoes and you know every but every business having its own kind of ethical tie-in, uh, which is that I mean, in some sense, that is of course better than pure Gen Z nihilist put Cheetos on your T-shirt, whatever, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. We we like people to have ethical concerns, but it. I also sometimes just want to buy a t-shirt, you know, and I don't want my t-shirt choice to be higher than it needs to be because it's going to a charity. I don't know about or know what they do, or I don't want (laughs) to be answer. I don't want to have to answer for the ethical, you know, for, I don't want my t-shirt to be my ethics. Ah, right. Sometimes it's, sometimes a shirt is just a shirt. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Right. Indeed. Yeah, right. <laughs> sure it is. That's why I get all my clothes at Walmart. Yeah. Well, and then, so if I, if I may bring back the old Milton Friedman argument, which I still pretty much stand behind, that businesses need to do what's long-term profitable. And so if consumers value ethical considerations into the products they buy, businesses are going to do it. Businesses aren't ethical. Only people are ethical, right? And so the policies that they put forth and the changes that they make come from individual humans that that's where the ethics lie. And so I think we should have that come about as a part of the process of how the business thinks they'll be successful. And then ultimately competition will end up bringing us to the right amount of quote unquote ethical businesses and quote unquote I hate to use the word non-ethical because in a sense, I think it's, it can be perfectly ethical to want to have pay my employees a good wage and, and have them have a job and do our thing and provide our service. I mean, I think that gets painted, but this extra, what was referred to in the past is double bottom lines or triple bottom lines, right? Where you've got, I'm serving profits, I'm serving shareholders, but I'm also um, serving yeah. this particular objective. And so it's a dual bottom line. And I always thought that I kind of tended to agree with Friedman that yeah. that doesn't need to be, it's actually kind of a washing of what reality really is that that already exists. It's just whether the consumers value it or not. And so I'm sympathetic to that line of argument, but I think it only actually works in the sense where, you know, Friedman or, or you might claim that we'll end up with the right amount if people actually have the correct ethics and the correct set of yeah. beliefs about whether their pet brand's ethical project is actually working to alleviate poverty or something where it says it is. But what do you mean by the correct ethics? That kind of scares me. If somebody tells me my correct ethic? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but I mean, uh, you can... Ethical beliefs are beliefs, you know, you, and you can have a belief that something is morally correct and be wrong about it. And yeah, uh, you know, that's what we do when we argue yeah. about ethical claims. Right. There's but, there's an assumption that that there is an objectively right, you know, ethical system. So, or at least that some ethics are better than others. Sure. That's really all you need, you know. Right. And yeah. everyone really at their core believes that, right? I mean, look at any contentious issue. It's you know, 
the fact that there's contention tells you that people think one's better than the other. Yeah, okay. you know, nobody thinks abortion is bad. But, what, that's just but, bad. but is <laughs> there a, there, there's some things, you know, if we, since this is faith and economics, so we have some absolute that we all believe in of a truth, right? There is a truth. But in this ethical thing, there is trade-offs. Like what I, I'm drawing a blank on what I could bring up with, with, with what we think is the correct ethic on this, but it's actually correct. What's correct for you. And I know that I don't want to get into a big beat up on moral relativism, but, but what's correct for you might be correct for somebody else in some rel- in some ranges, in some elements. You might have already swallowed ethical relativism. That's what you're say, <laughs> well, I think so. Let, let's. Let, I mean, we can we can talk about Tom's shoes as a great example because you know that Poverty Inc. documentary six seven years ago, you know, talked about the fact that their attempt is to do something that they think is good. Yeah. Which is give people shoes good. that don't have shoes. Sure. I mean, I can you know I can make an argument about you know the universal destination of goods and all that sort of, sort of thing, and so this I think is a slightly different problem than what you're getting at Russ, which is that, you know, we, we might agree on the ethical goal, but whether or not your actions get you to that goal is the question, right? And yeah. so, you know, what, what happens is, you know, everybody who makes shoes there is now out of business and it just disrupts their whole ability to provide for themselves in that one area because they know the shoes are coming and, and, and all of that. And I mean, we can get, you know, you can, you can talk about, uh, the, the North Carolina, there was a great NBER paper uh, several years ago about that when they cut off the, uh, the extension of unemployment benefits and people just went back to work. People didn't die in the streets. They just went back to work. And so the whole idea was that, you know, yeah, you want to keep extending these unemployment benefits, but all you're doing is just incentivizing people not to work. And, and once you take them away, they just go back to work. I, I think I've got something to say on that to bring my thoughts back together, bridging off what you said with the kind of the means to end. So there might be, we agree on an end and there's different means. And I think when you face true uncertainty that neither means, two different means could be correct. Right. Right. There may so, be maybe good, be, better or worse at accomplishing. Right. And the, so an economist the, might say, well, if we know the probability distribution, one is more efficient than the other. Right. And so that might be, something that can be calculated. That's not true uncertainty. So if you know a probability distribution of an event, then the economist can come in and solve the most efficient means to that end, which is what we tend to focus on in economics. But ultimately, if there is true uncertainty because there's so much information or whatever, it's too complex, then it's very possible that two means could be just as correct. How about we say equally unblameworthy? Because the whole point about uncertainty is you don't know which one is correct. Right. Right. But that means that one of them's correct. Right. But, <laughs> In hindsight, 2020, you mean? Yeah. Okay. But, so, uh, but what, what we don't want to say is you're, you're morally culpable for doing something that you couldn't have right. known was right. the right thing to do at the right time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like a butterfly effect kind of thing. You, you couldn't have known that X was going to lead to Y. And so okay. it's not, it can't be your fault. All right. Well, let's ponder that. That looks like a good spot to take a break, and then we'll uh, come back here in 30 seconds to ponder butterflies.
please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Courtney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Okay, we're back. So butterflies and bankruptcy, I think is where we left off. Butterfly effects and bankruptcy. So I thought, uh, what is the bankruptcy? What does that mean? So for Forever 21, I thought maybe our listeners might want to, we can kind of walk through some of the details of what it means to declare bankruptcy, maybe even why we have it. But Yeah, so. I think, so I think the, the general idea that somebody has, if, they, if they're not very well informed on this is like, Oh, well, that means Forever 21, you know, is just disappearing now. Like it's just going to, it's just going to fade away. And, you know, you have this impression that, well, you know, their stores are going to close and stuff like that. And they're all going to go away. I mean, it's just like Blockbuster. I mean, I can remember, I mean, some of those stores held on for years. Mm-hmm. And so the whole idea, at least for now, it's some of their stores are closing. And again, if you read the articles that, that I'm going to put on the site in the show notes, they're they're closing some stores and and leaving some others open, and so we should talk about corporate bankruptcy and stuff like that. I guess in in specific. And I I can't remember if it's a different chapter. I'm trying to Google real quick here, so maybe you know. But uh, there's chapters for an individual. There's chapter seven bankruptcy and chapter thirteen. Okay. Chapter seven is a complete walk away. I'm done, which is the one I think most people usually do. Um, you have to pass certain tests to be able to do that. Uh, you can't walk away from any IRS debt or student loans. Funny how the monopoly of government uh, conveniently carved out those two because of student loan guaranteed debts and IRS debts. So those are the only two that are exempted. And then an individual can protect a certain amount of basic things for their household. So um, they can't take lose their house. They'd have to still pay their mortgage if they had it. Their mortgage you know, doesn't disappear, but um, they have the right to... Um, basically continue on with the payments for their house. Um, you can have a gun or two, I think, if we want to get into uh, Second Amendment type stuff. Um, so that's that's in there. Totally protected, so you don't have to sell your gun, basically. Now, if you have an arsenal of 20 guns or something, you know, with a grand total of 20000 bucks, the bankruptcy judge is going to say, hey, we need some of that. And I, that varies from state to state. We're in Kansas where we're recording this, so we're pretty gun-friendly and believe everybody needs to be able to have one of those babies. So uh, you get to keep a car. Um, I can't remember. Uh, like, I looked at this a long time ago, like maybe a boat or something. Maybe I think you might have to sell your boat or you can also buy the boat back. So you can have a certain amount of funds or gifted funds where let's say your boat's worth uh, $3,000. 
you can actually buy it from the bankruptcy judge. So if you mm. hand them, the th after you declare, if you hand them, so you declare on, let's say, January 1st, and then later on you uh, provide an inventory of the, of the stuff that is for sale or what's being liquidated, who has, the creditors all get a chance to say, I got a claim on uh, this person. Mm -hmm. And then you can actually buy your stuff back out of bankruptcy, the stuff that wasn't exempted. But otherwise, your clothes, your TV, your couch, you know, you don't lose all your property. There's a certain amount of that's. So is it one car? Or how does that work? Uh, I think each person in the household would get their car. So if you're a husband and wife declaring bankruptcy, I think you'd each get to keep. But if you had a, a bonus vehicle after that, you'd have to probably right. buy it back from yourself or get it. Is there um, a ceiling on the house? Price there, I think there is. Yeah, um, I'm not, and that can vary. I think that can vary from state to state, but that's the idea of a Chapter Seven bankruptcy for an individual. Chapter Thirteen bankruptcy is a reorganization of your debts, where the bankruptcy judge develops a five-year plan. So let's say you owe thirty percent. Thirty percent ominous. Well, let's say let's say you got thirty percent interest in a. $5,000 debt or something, the judge might look at all your debts and you've got 10 debts with 10 different people and say, listen, uh, you can all do this. It's going to be 0% interest. This person can afford to do this. They just couldn't afford 30% interest from everybody mm -hmm. on these debts. Right. The payment's going to be this. And at the end of five years, it's done. Right. And then if that person fails that payment plan, then it goes back to they owe the whole thing. Right. So a lot of people don't do the chapter 13 unless it's just they're struggling a little bit. They just need a little bit of help from bankruptcy protection. But Right. So the whole idea is that there's some kind of legal process that reduces or uh, eliminates to an extent the debts that you owe. And so then, so it, it's an important thing. It's, you know, Forever 21's creditors, you know, might have uh, a certain amount of money that they're, that they're able to receive, but they're not going to get all of. Oh, I just Googled chapter seven. It's still called Chapter 7 for businesses, too, and limited liability companies. So, Is it ethical? Why do we have a system where we have bailouts on people's debts? Well, so I, I, think, I think there's a very clear line between that the term bailout as used since 2009 and, you know, a bankruptcy. Because to me, you know, for number one, you know, if you, if you do declare bankruptcy, for the next seven years, you're basically radioactive. You know, nobody's going to lend you any money. You know, you're not going to be able to start a business, you know, if you need any kind of investment at all. And you're not going to be able to borrow money for any other type of consumer good or anything like that. And so, so I think there is a big difference between that and, you know, for instance, like GM, you know, the government just coming in and just bailing out all the bondholders from a company yeah, or something that like that. That was a special. The government isn't paying your creditors to right. declare bankruptcy. Right. The creditors take the loss. The creditors take right. the loss. Right. Yes. And, and so the creditors have been yeah. earning interest on you in the past. Yeah. And the creditors took a risk on you contractually when right. they gave you the debt in the first place. So yeah. that's kind of the other side where I think some people might say, if you, if you can't pay it back, morally, you want to pay your loans back. But our system is set up so that the person who lended you the money, they knew there was risk involved right. with it. And so start fresh. God bless America. You screwed up. This right. is on the books as a way to start fresh. And I think from an entrepreneurship standpoint, I think it's real healthy in the United States that we don't have debtors jail anymore or whatever, or that you're essentially branded for life. So let's say you're a real innovative person and you want to start a business and you take a 
you know, you go crazy on taking a credit card loan for $100,000 and you start some business and it fails and here you're stuck with this debt, right? And so bankruptcy does allow that person to kind of get a fresh start that they might become another productive entrepreneur with the next idea that's a better idea later. And so I, I've looked at bankruptcy over the years a little bit differently than I was when I was younger. I thought, oh, they should have to pay their debts back or whatever. But I think if you step back and look at it from, I mean, multiple perspectives, but from the encouraging entrepreneurship and encouraging people to kind of be free with what they want to do, as long as lenders have that baked into their interest rate, that's just part of the game. Having worked in a lot of restaurants, you know, almost all restaurants fail and they almost all have to declare bankruptcy, you know, yeah. but having, for one thing, having people have the ability to go into an LLC and not be held personally responsible for the debt that, yeah. you know, the, the venture. Accumulates. But, but most businesses that are LLCs don't end up having the luxury of the owners not having to sign on personally. So basically from a lender's perspective, let's say you want $100,000 to do some venture and you have an LLC. They will have you sign what's called a personal guarantee on top of any <laughs> assets that the LLC has, which once you understand all that, it, it makes sense. Like if your LLC has basically no assets, so you've got a, you're leasing your building for your restaurant or whatever, right. and you, you've got some used restaurant equipment and you've got whatever you, it t you take up on your asset inventory and you, you're lucky if you got $20,000 worth of stuff and you're trying to do some hundred thousand dollar venture. Well, you don't have enough assets that the bank can reasonably reclaim if you default on that loan. And so my point with all this is that a lot of people get into personal debt when they get into business in different ways, they end up having to sign on. Yeah. Cause the bank, the bank is recognizes that there's no asset for collateral there. And yeah. so they want to guarantee from, yeah. you know, they want, they want some other type of collateral yeah. for that loan. And there can be limited guarantees so that maybe there is $20,000 worth of assets. And so we need a 50% guarantee of right. this debt or whatever. It can be in fractional forms with partners. And so uh, it's pretty interesting how, we've got a good set of laws on the books that I think support people to be able to start businesses, but, but, but it's at certainly the same time, not without risk. But also providing enough of an incentive to keep them from just willy nilly declaring bankruptcy of debt and then yeah. declaring bankruptcy yeah. and then doing it again tomorrow. Right. Yeah. yeah and there's limits on the time you can declare bankruptcy again. Like you yeah. can't even declare it for another 10 years or seven years yeah. or something. Maybe I think it's, it's after that. No. Well, uh, one of my points about the restaurant industry is that I think that's an area where we kind of overlook how innovative creative destruction is and that, mm -hmm. um, you know, so many restaurants fail and the ones that actually survive, uh, you know, restaurant culture is very kind of important in America. And it's something that a lot of people really enjoy and people don't realize how high turnover rates are yeah. and the amount of creative destruction that goes on in that one yeah, very unregulated yeah. sector. Yeah. Well, and there's pretty low entry costs, so there's just a lot of competition. The thing I saw in my years of doing businesses is that you've just got people with rose-colored glasses and too deep of credit lines. So on an Excel spreadsheet, they can make this work by, oh, if we sell this amount, and that sounds good, and they're kind of you know, eyeballing it or they have a passion for cooking or whatever the case is. Um, and so they start up the restaurant and I think it's 50% fail within the first three years or something. Uh, it's hard. Uh, which, yeah, is it? which is kind of makes the, maybe the first year. I don't know. I can't remember. It was really high. 
which kind of makes these restaurant rescue or bar rescue shows yeah. uh, really interesting because it's, you know, they, when they, when they quote unquote rescue this restaurant, I mean, yeah, the people there are usually the same people, but the whole place looks completely different. They change the name. They change everything about the business except the people that are there. And so really that that's not even an example of them maintaining this one business. They've completely changed everything, you know, the entertainment and food aspects of the business and they've just left the people intact and that's it, you know? So that was, that's sort of a bailout, yeah. but it still, it still follows the same kind of creative destruction path. I think uh, the healthcare industry, when I've reflected on bankruptcy and its pros and cons or whatever, a lot of people don't appreciate that everybody can get healthcare in the United States. I think some people want it more formulated than others, but you can't be turned down if you go into an emergency room. You rack up a debt, you declare bankruptcy. It's that, I mean, it's really, that is our system. It, it might not, it doesn't look good on paper because it's not very, um, you know, planned. I well, guess. and I mean, but bankruptcy it, rightly has a stigma to it that you, to an extent, you want a stigma right. on bankruptcy. There, there should be some, so, yeah. yeah. I think, I think the, the, but the problem people have is they don't, they don't like care, those stigmas. Yeah, catastrophic care, or people that are low income and for a, complex array of reasons, whatever they are, but the healthcare was usually covered somehow. And it might not be the best way, of course, and pre preventative medicine and all that, but there's always been this bankruptcy help to provide kind of a safety net um, in the healthcare industry. But, right. So. All right. Well, I think that was a good discussion about Forever 21 and the sort of springboard to uh, other inter interesting issues that, you know, our listeners may not be hundred uh, percent up on so yeah and as we discussed through we weren't a hundred percent up on no. we just like <laughs> we just are brave enough or dumb enough to just enter into territories at any given time and i hope listeners that you uh, have come to appreciate that over time are free-flowing dialogue so on behalf of the gordon institute we appreciate you listening if you uh, get a chance to subscribe to our podcast as a regular download that'll help boost our ratings and get other people aware of what we're doing here. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.